271, Part 4, Chapters 7 and 8. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 271, The Birds. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. Well, hello. Why, you ask nervously, why did she name the podcast The Birds? I will tell you, I named it The Birds because this morning, something very strange was happening outside my window. I kept hearing this noise, this thunking noise, and I thought somebody was actually chopping a piece of wood out in front of our little apartment area. And so I went downstairs, and I'm looking, and... Water is coming down from the trees. We had a rainstorm last night. Water is kind of dripping down from the trees, but also nuts are falling from the trees. And I'm hearing a lot of birds. And I look up into the big tree that's in front of our place. And lo and behold, a swarm of birds are landing hard in the upper branches of the trees and knocking the seeds, the the little acorn pods, down on the ground where they are shattering so the birds can get in and eat the nut inside how amazing is that i tell you nature rocks i love stuff like that so that was my little my little shout out to the birds because that was pretty cool now we have a little housekeeping a couple little housekeeping bits to deal with today the most important is this I post on Fridays. Unless an act of God strikes me down, I will post on Fridays. If something happens, I will let you know through the Craftlit Just the Books newsletter. That's the free newsletter that you can sign up for at the craftlit.com website. I had to use that newsletter function this week because the Craftlit feed died. Why did it die? It died because uh, Apple updated their uh, OS, and sometimes when they do big updates, things go wonky. And all of a sudden, they started rejecting a certain piece of JavaScript that was buried in a few episodes way back within the Craftlet Pantheon. Now, the interesting thing is those uh, pieces of Java code were things that were Craftlet-specific, not just the book specific, which helps me track them down a little bit because they're not really showing up accurately in the feed validator. What's a feed validator? I can take the RSS feed for the show, which for Craftlet is craftlet.libsyn.com slash RSS. For just the books, it's jtb.libsyn.com slash RSS. I can type that into a place called 
the feed validator, and it will read through the code for the entire history of the podcast. And it will then let me know if there is a problem with the code somewhere, something that would prevent it from working, something that would invalidate the feed. Well, my feed has been just fine for a very long time until last Friday. And I started getting an inkling that something was wrong on Saturday morning when I started getting notes from people saying, um, just the books is working fine, but Craftlet is dead. As you might well imagine, this was a bit distressing. So uh, it has been a week now, and we are still going through and fixing the feed. It is a giant game of whack-a-mole. Uh, I will remove code. Sometimes I will go looking for code that the feed validator has pulled up, and it doesn't actually exist. It's not where it says it is. So we're not entirely sure exactly what is the real problem. My suspicion is there is a tiny piece of code in a very long ago episode that's just bugging iTunes. Now, the interesting thing is iTunes is a location. It is not the host. Libsyn.com, the site of the RSS feed, is the host. So, craftlit.libsyn.com, that is a website to which you can always go to listen and even to get the show notes. It's not a pretty site. It's not a fancy site. It is merely the host site. Because their web pages are really limited, I have chosen to use the WordPress site, craftlit.com. For my main page, I have a lot more control over what I can do there, much more control than I do over at the Libsyn site. But that means that there is always a fail-safe for this show. So if something doesn't post on a Friday, you know, by Friday night, you don't see anything posting, go over to craftlit.libsyn.com or sign up for the RSS feed through your web reader, whatever it is that you use to, uh, to aggregate blogs. If you use um, Google Reader or, or your email, you can use craftlit.libsyn.com slash RSS. And RSS stands for really simple syndication, just, just like watching Green Acres on TV. <laughs> Easier than falling off a log back in 1982 you can get this delivered to your mailbox or delivered to your blog reader. And that is also true on days where I'm on vacation and I don't have a whole lot of control about how things post. I, I'm, I'm restricted. My parameters are restricted for me. It means that if you are listening on the web and two episodes don't post on the same set of show notes so you can't access the audio file, for the second show, you can always go to jtb.lipson.com slash RSS if you're using it for your aggregator. And if you're just going there to pick up the latest episode, jtb.lipson.com will help. And it's L-I-B-S-Y-N. Um, Liberated Syndication is the name of the company, Libsyn.com. They've been very good to me and very patient in trying to help me figure out the, the game of whack-a-mole that I am playing with code and iTunes and things like that. So I just wanted to let you know that because it's it's something I don't, I talked about a lot in the beginning of Craftlet because it was all new and people were having trouble figuring out how to use this and where to go with that and what does this mean and all of that. But with just the books, uh, you know, we kind of picked up in the middle and we're, we're going backwards and retrofitting old audio. But as far as new audio goes, um, 
I, I think I pretty much made the assumption that by now people kind of know what they're doing. There's also a new app on the new OS for iPads, iPhones, and things like that. It is a podcast app, and you can search for your podcast. You can get just the books on it, and uh, and that's pretty nice. It is different from the iPhone app in that it doesn't get any of the extras. And when there is dynamic advertising on this show, you will still hear it. If you have the iPhone app, you do not hear that advertising at the beginning of the show. Uh, and, and so uh, it's nifty. It's kind of neat. I, I still like Stitcher. It works really well. It streams really well. It makes me happy. Um, but if you need old episodes... Uh, the new podcast app will help, but it won't get you the extras and you'll still hear the advertising. So you may prefer going with the dedicated iPhone app. You may also want to go take a look at a book which will come out shortly, October 2nd, 2012, called The Lost Arts of Hearth and Home, The Happy Luddite's Guide to Domestic Self-Sufficiency. Now, full disclosure, this is written by an online friend of mine, Ken Albala, who was, if you recall, back a couple years ago, we did a Dickens of Christmas blog hop, and um, I did the podcast for A Christmas Carol, and other people were providing recipes and information and all sorts of stuff. And Ken was the one who taught us how to roast a duck. Now, he's also the guy who on his blog recently posted a recipe for snickerdoodles made with duck fat. <laughs> I know, right? He said they tasted awesome. I have not made them. I don't have access right now to duck. But feeling the love from Ken. The other day for Yom Kippur, for the breakfast, I made, I went nuts. It was my inaugural for cooking for the, the cooler season. I'd kind of shut down the kitchen um, <laughs> during the summer. And, uh, and so I, I made a big dinner. And one of the things I did was a giant brisket. And, uh, and here, let me pass on a glorious brisket recipe to you. Brisket is a very tough meat to cook well and you can really mess yourself up and make a <laughs> really hard to eat piece of shoe leather if you um, don't have a trick. I have a trick. I will pass it on to you and then I'll tell you how this loops back to Ken. So get a pen and paper and write down this is Aunt Sissy's brisket and that is C-I-S-S-I-E. This is my husband's Aunt Sissy. And this is her awesome brisket. And I really hope she doesn't mind me passing it on to you. <laughs> I should check. Uh, orange juice is the secret. Set it up like you do a regular pot roast. Onions, celery, carrots. I threw in a couple of sprigs of fresh rosemary this time. And oh my goodness, did the house smell glorious. You put it in a roasting pan. You cover the whole shebang with orange juice. No joke. Uh, hour and a half on one side covered, uh, 350, turn it over, covered again, hour and a half on the second side, covered, then 30 minutes uncovered, turn it again, 30 minutes uncovered, turn it again. The orange juice cooks down, you wind up with an amazing gravy that really doesn't taste like orange juice, it just tastes good. And, uh, and the vegetables have all cooked, and again, don't taste like orange juice, just taste good. Now, on the health side of thing, I have no idea if the vitamins from the orange juice are staying inside 
and making the meat that much more healthful. All I know is they taste good, really, really good. And the acid in the orange juice breaks down the fat in the brisket. So all of that fat goes out into the juice and creates this amazing beef, beefy flavor that's very tangy, but not orangey. And, uh, and then you pull it out of the roasting pan, you let it cool off a little bit. And then if you cut it against the grain, because on a brisket, you can really see the grain of the meat. If you cut it against the grain, you make slices of meat that not only can you cut with a fork, because you're, you're using the, the grains with the, with the side of your fork, um, but it also melts in your mouth stunning. So here I have this enormous slab of brisket and there's a huge layer of fat on one side. So I'm slicing it off and as I'm slicing it off, I'm looking at it going, mm. I wonder if I can render this down to useful cooking fat. So I go online and I find instructions for rendering beef fat. Here are the instructions. Put the fat in a pan, turn the heat on low, walk away and that's it slowly really painfully slowly over time the fat cooks down to liquid and the clumpy pieces that probably didn't want to eat anyway those stay behind and uh and you can pour it into a, a container uh, of course boiling hot fat should be dealt with very very cautiously i used a mason jar and it creaked like I probably shouldn't have used a mason jar. I mean, I've put hot stuff in a mason jar before. Boiling hot fat is a little different. I probably should have let it cool down a little bit more than I did. But uh, pour it through a strainer, some kind of a, a strainer device. I used the metal wide mouth jar thing that I use for canning with uh, cheesecloth across the top. And voila, I have magic beef fat that I can use uh, that's been strained. Um, for cooking things because uh, fats that have been not uh, that have not been processed or overprocessed non-hydrogenated things are in fact healthier for you and you don't have to use as much of them as you do uh, the thinner things that's why if I'm gonna fry something up I like to fry it up in a real substance like butter uh, olive oil, something that hasn't been processed very much because I'm starting to think that some of my body's rejection of gluten, which is hard to digest, is in fact a, a rejection of all things that are difficult to digest. And as we know, the closer we eat to the garden and to the original state of the product, the easier it is on our bodies. So a lot of raw vegetables, a lot of cooked vegetables. I also ooh, made a really easy spinach artichoke dip because that's the only way I can get the kids to eat spinach. You ready? This is easy. 10 ounces of frozen spinach, thawed, ready to go. Two cups of shredded Parmesan cheese, not like the Kraft Parmesan uh, powder, but like actual shredded Parmesan. Uh, so two cups of that. I just threw in two containers. They had them on sale at the grocery store and it was like, score! So throw those suckers in. Uh, 
and I got, th they said a 14 ounce can of artichoke hearts. I didn't have a 14 ounce can. I had three little glass jars. So I took those, drained those, cut those suckers up, saved the artichoke oil for making salad dressing. I was in a saving kind of use what you've got mood. Um, you throw those all in a, a mixer, mix those suckers up or hand them over to your kids. Have your kids mix those up while you are processing a cup, eight ounces of cream cheese, two thirds of a cup of sour cream, a third of a cup of mayonnaise. Now I used low fat or non-fat for all of those things. The only thing that was full on was the Parmesan. Mix the white goo together until it is completely gooey. Add back in the spinach Parmesan artichoke that you've diced up nicely. Throw that all in together put it in some kind of container. I wound up using individual ramekins, like little mini souffle ramekins, and everybody got some, and then I sprinkled a little Parmesan on. You cook that for 350 for half an hour. Done, boom, right there. Spinach any kid will eat. Spinach even most husbands will eat. Picky eater friends of ours, the kids will eat this. So, big score. And then I just put out uh, celery, sugar snap peas, and carrots. No chips, no bread just good healthy stuff and um yeah boy so now two wow two bonus recipes for you right there voila i will not be writing these down on the show notes uh the spinach artichoke artichoke dip you can find anywhere just by googling spinach artichoke dip um aunt sissy's brisket though i'm gonna make you work for it you have to write it down yourself 350 for both of those which is nice because then you can just throw those spinach artichokes in for the last half hour of the brisket and done, big done. So why did this all remind me of Kennel Bala and his book? It's because of the rendering the beef fat. As, as I was doing that, he had just posted the thing about the duck fat snickerdoodles and looking at the fat on that piece of meat, I was like, God, there has to be some use for this. Something I can do that doesn't waste food. I'm back in that mood where I really don't want to waste food. Water prices are rising. You don't want to waste water. Food prices, I've just heard that pork is going to go through the roof because there was trouble at the, uh, the uh, corn crop was troubled this year, which impacts hog feed, which impacts the price of pork. So, uh, so I was in a mood to save and, and that's what I did. Along with saving, we were not able to save Yuka. Yuka was the winner of the uh, Knit Companion Lucy Neatbee app that is ever so marvelous and makes me just love technology so much. I love it when stuff works. <laughs> There's so many days where stuff just doesn't work and this works marvelously. Uh, Yuka is in Japan and unfortunately the code only works I guess in the United States, um, iTunes shops, which really bites, but there it is. So uh, I had to pick a new winner. So our new winner is Leah, Leah L, or Leah Labi, actually. So Leah, I have sent you an email message uh, telling you that you have won the new, uh, the new post. <laughs> for the winner of the Lucy Neepy app. If you have an iPad or you have a friend with an iPad you can commandeer, uh, you will be given the code to download your own free 
version of the Lucy Neepy app. And again, if it doesn't work out for you, I'll keep I'll just keep drawing names until I hit one, and uh, and I will send you something else instead. So that was very excited. And you know, while I was also sitting there looking at that beef tallow, it made me think about. For, there was a brief moment in time, and I do mean brief moment in time, where I considered making my own cosmetics. This is a while ago. This is before children. And I thought, oh, it would be so nice to know what was in the stuff that you're putting on your hands and face. And so I gave up on it. I did. I got a book. I kind of fiddled with it. And, and what I have decided is because of Craftlet, I have gotten to meet such amazingly wonderful people all over the place and and people who do things like make hand lotion and and stuff like that it it makes me feel better because i know i can go to a product made by a person and that lets me feel that much more secure about what i'm putting on my children and what i'm putting on myself like i found a really good mosquito thing oh, i need to find that bottle i've used it all up is the problem and i haven't reordered anything um, now that it's the end of the season, I should probably do that and prepare for next year. If I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But it was one of those things where it was like a homegrown thing and they put the list of ingredients and you're like, yes, that's all real and not scary big names that I don't understand. And, and it just makes me that much happier having Maggie over at Happy Hands be one of the sponsors for the show. Because I know, number one, Maggie is a listener and we know we're just better, so that's good. And, and she's a knitter, so you know she's not going to make anything that's going to damage your yarn while you're knitting. You know, if you put hand cream on, you don't want that kind of waxy goo to go onto your yarn, unless it already has lanolin in it, in which case you wouldn't need to put on any hand cream. So it's just, it's, if you haven't gone over and looked at Maggie's store, uh, link is in the show notes well worth a look plus she's also she's the one i told you before who does the notes for knitters the connotes for knitters and i just used one of her cards again and they just they do make me giggle so go take a look have fun enjoy and the last announcement before we head off into gulliver I got an email earlier this week from Jamie who uh, for a long time was doing PR over at Interweave and she's gone freelance which I think is just Marvy and she sent me information on some new stuff that I thought you might like to hear about. She's she's one of those really um, it's so helpful to have people like her because part of her job is looking at the web and finding cool interesting stuff which I really don't have time to do anymore so when she sends me something she sends it knowing how diverse you all are and that makes me so happy because when I get an email from her I know that it's going to be something that's useful to you so she sent me two pieces of information that I'm passing on now the first is interesting you probably have heard the the names of the women who surround interweaves inception uh many many times if you've been in the spinning or the uh knitting or the piecework,ing uh world and some of those women have gotten together and they have created a company called cloth roads c-l-o-t-h r-o-a-d-s all one word and you can find them at clothroads.com um 
they are they have a holiday gift guide that they've put together and that's great but one of the things that i wanted to let you know about is the Molo wool project this is a, a project where uh, gwen and john meyer went to kenya africa and they've they've helped people who live there use the fleeces from their animals to spin more efficiently with uh, wheels. Gwen actually made a makeshift wheel for them to, to learn to spin on. And, um, and now they are, the, the women in this village are supporting uh, their, their families. They're able to buy more land and buy more animals and, and all of this stuff through using the fleeces, spinning the wool, and making these adorable knit animals for sale so and it's all stuff that they see it's like they're making animals and toys and whimsical things from what they see in their daily life which is kind of cool for those of us who don't live in kenya and don't get to see this stuff so there is a catalog which i've linked to and there's the molo wool project which i've i've linked to an informational page about that and then there's just clothroads.com which you could go take a look at and see what else they're up to they have a lot of nifty things that are for sale so if you're running out of time for christmas shopping you've got kind of this backup of really cute you don't have to know how to knit you can buy a cute little knitted thing and support a really uh, hard-working and ambitious group of women who've who've decided to make their lives better by uh, by making these fabulous handcrafts. So that's one of the first things that Jamie wanted me to let you know about. The other little newsy tidbit is for our quilters. There is an I Love My LQS Visit Your Local Quilt Shop Day that is being planned for January 24th, 2013. There will be all sorts of stuff that's built around this day, but I just wanted to put it on your radar. I'll be bringing you more information about it, but I can tell you that for right now, they do have a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash quiltshopday, typed as all one word. So put that on your calendar, January 24th, 2013, which is a horrifying thought as far as I'm concerned, but, uh, but that day, go visit your local quilt shop and tell them that you heard about the day at craftlit.com. Well, I have a little bit of good news before we, we flip over to, to Culliver, to poor Culliver. And that is, I wanted to let you know that my, my poor husband, my long-suffering husband, is now Dr. Ordover. He's gotten his, his PhD. We are, or I guess it's an EDD, because um, it's education and they differentiate somehow. But, you know, years later, he did what I think is a fascinating study on differentiated education. And for those of you in the ed biz, uh, this has been a, a buzzword for, what, 12 years now? I think the first time I heard it was around 2000. And um, I think, honestly, differentiated education is what elementary school teachers have to do all the time. But, of course, they have, you know, if you're lucky under 30 kids in a classroom and that's it. It's a little more difficult in a high school classroom or a middle school classroom where you have 30 kids who come in for 40 minutes and leave again. And uh, you don't really have the time required to do much more than, you know, impart instruction, get kids to practice while you're watching them, help them if they're making mistakes. 
and then send them off to practice independently on their own so that they can come back and utilize what they have then practiced. And this, of course, gets even trickier if you're an English teacher and you have to also deal with reading novels and, and things like that. And finding, finding good ways to combine all of that stuff is, is rather tricky. Well, my husband started to do research on who's getting trained in how to do real, legitimate, honest-to-goodness, differentiated instruction. And the answer appears to be, um, no one. <laughs> he interviewed a whole mess load of people and... Uh, yeah, it was actually really useful and interesting stuff. I'm encouraging him to publish his dissertation uh, the same way that, that he published Cool for Cats because I, I think it is a very useful and important document, especially for teachers who need backup. Because as, as we're moving more into the, you know, we're holding everybody to high standards, which I think is marvelous, and all of the teachers who I worked with would have gotten merit pay and passed with flying colors if that had been an option. Um, it's a little tricky to be held responsible for something that you don't have any knowledge or awareness of or training in or support for or anything like that. And that tends to happen in the ed biz. Somebody comes down from on high and says, now we're doing whole language. And you're like, great, we'll call it whole language, but we'll have to keep doing what we're doing because nobody's helped us figure this next step out. So, so I am... I am very excited to be my husband, the doctor. <laughs> but he's very excited and very happy. And if you see him on Facebook or on Twitter, or go over to the Cool for Cats website, which is crafting-a-life.com slash C4C, the numeral four in the middle. Uh, you can leave a comment for him or, uh, or leave a review for Cool for Cats on Amazon. Uh, all of that is helpful and uh <laughs> and it just makes his day he'll come back and go i got another review on amazon for his, his novel because in his previous life he was a a playwright actually and one of the best he he always had whenever he got reviewed he had reviews like the best play i, I actually memorized one the best play i saw this year i discovered accidentally while walking through the wilds of Lower Manhattan, and it was it was my husband's play that uh, sort of almost kind of was related to stuff that he he saw happen and, and that he was uh, around when he taught English in Slovakia, and it was a beautiful play called Motherland, and uh, and then he got great reviews for the Golem, and he got great reviews for everything he did, but you know you can't support a family or, <laughs> or even yourself much as a, a playwright these days. So so then he got a day job. And, uh, and the Ed world is the better for it. So, so I just had to give a little shout out there for the old man, the doctor. Gulliver, time for Gulliver. Well, today's chapters are interesting. I probably always say that at the beginning of talking about the book. They're interesting today because this is, I think, the, the real turning of the beginning of the end. We only have five chapters left and we're doing two of them today and three of them next week and that will be the end of Gulliver. And I've told you that uh, one of the things that happens at the end of this book, much like what happens with Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, is that as any good satirist must, uh, eventually they, they pull all of the blocks out from under you until you have nowhere left to stand and you are simply lost and alone 
and this is where we find ourselves. Now, Swift is not really an Enlightenment thinker. I know that's probably heresy, but we've kind of talked about this before, that when you look at Enlightenment thinkers and you look at Locke and, uh, Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau, when you look at uh, even, even Newton, who we know Swift hated, uh, when you look at the Declaration of Independence, when you look at the, the very beginning, uh, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary, course there is not being used like a map, the course of human events, the, the stars are fixed in their courses. This was a actually scientific term at the time. And so the, the when in the course of human events is drawing on all of this great thought that was kind of all converging at the same time in the late 1600s and, the, and into, the, into the 1700s. And the, the impact of all of that thought on people like Jefferson was massive and, and pops up in their writing in really interesting ways. This combination of the scientific and, and the religious and the humanistic, this idea that we have natural rights given to us by our creator or by nature, that n- we naturally, innately are meant to be free. These were massively revolutionary ideas. Now, where it gets really interesting with Gulliver's Travels, especially this part of Gulliver's Travels, is he's already ripped into all of European history, <laughs> all, all, all of uh, social norms, uh, philosophical thought, scientific thought, uh, religious thought. Um, he's reduced the, the Protestant Reformation to an argument about whether wine is blood or not. I mean, he's, he's really torn into everything. And you start to go, well, then what's left? Well, and here's where you may want to not listen with your child for a while, because, um, because you can guess what's left. And actually, today's, today's chapters are pretty adult. So if you are listening with children, I would wait at this point and listen by yourself. And then if you think it's fine for your kids, uh, pop it back on for them. But the the interpersonal now is what becomes really important. And moving away from philosophy with a capital P and religion with a capital R and humanity with a capital H, now we just get down to plain old ordinary life and what we as people do during a day or during our lifetime. And if you look at Locke, say, or Rousseau, these ideas of of what humankind, what we are inherently, naturally, uh, they they look at us as these kind of elevated beings. If you start with Locke, you've got the idea of the tabula rasa, that we start as a blank slate, and we are filled by all these marvels that we witness and experience, and we learn and we grow with, uh, during the course of our lifetime. And so, you know, we, of course, would fill ourselves with the greatest, richest things we could possibly find, because who wouldn't? So you fill yourself with art, and you fill yourself with literature, and you fill yourself with music, and you fill yourself with reason. And this is where I'm heading. 
Well, if we, as we've said, Swift is really an interesting satirist because unlike most satirists who look to the future, satirize the present in order to get to a better future, Swift is satirizing the present in order to get us to focus back on a better or an imagined better past. He is a nostalgist in many ways. And so the, the idea that pure reason, and I'm emphasizing that on purpose, that pure reason is a goal an end point that you want to reach, he seems to be heading towards maybe not so much. Maybe that might not be such a great idea. And so in today's chapters, we're, we're heading into, I think, one of the most complex set of chapters that we've got. Because on the one hand, who among us isn't attracted by the thought of an incredibly tranquil society where everyone is well-behaved, where nobody is offensive, nobody even smells bad, everybody is polite, because that is the intelligent, reasoned thing to do. If one wants to be treated well, one must therefore treat others well. If one wants to be understood by others, one must expend some time and effort understanding others themselves. There's this um, very careful, stately, well-mannered vision that I have in my head when I think of the Huynims. And of course, that's very easy because it's easy to see a horse in your mind as this stately attractive, calm, patient being. So fine. That's great. That's awesome. And that's a beautiful goal. But it's not really a human goal, is it? I mean, really, we are messier than that. In fact, there was a marvelous quote from the, from the movie 1776, which I know some people disparage, but I love it as a, as a playwright's wife. I love it for the fact that they took actual letters and texts of the people who were actually there and pulled from all of those texts to create the dialogue that we see in the movie. And there's a quote attributed to Benjamin Franklin, which I love. Um, John Dickinson said, fortunately, the people maintain a higher regard for their mother country. This is towards the end when the arguments are really quite fraught. Franklin says, higher certainly than she feels for them. Never was such a valuable possession so stupidly and recklessly managed than this entire continent by the British crown. Our industry discouraged, our resources pillaged. First of all, our very character stifled. We've spawned a new race here, Mr. Dickinson. Rougher, simpler, more violent, more enterprising, less refined. We're a new nationality. We require a new nation. So that's being spoken in 1776. And that's not all that long in the grand scheme of things past when Swift was writing this. This idea of a new people being all of these less refined things. Well, there's there's no question that those elements are inherent in humans in general. And it is the construct of society, this is Hobbesian, the the construct of society that kind of keeps a lid on it all and forces us to behave ourselves that without a society, without someone 
in quotation marks, watching, we'd all go off and do all sorts of things. And very few of us would ever, ever behave like Huynum's. You know, it's like a feral child. Society is not natural. Society is what we impose on ourselves freely, but what we impose on ourselves in order to be successful and forward-moving. And this is where taking a look at Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau gets really interesting because there's the Lockean in me and the Rousseauvian in me who, who loves to believe uh, in, in higher human nature, in our ability to rise above, and that really we're all just marvelous people who, you know, always, uh, no, not always, who would never become Lord of the Flies. That's my, that's my dream. And of course, speaking to Craftlet and Just the Books listeners, we all know we, at least, are those marvelous people and that we would rise above in any situation. We would be Ralph on the island, never Jack. Um, it's the rest of the people that we have to be concerned about. We're fine. We're good. We're all very up there with Locke. Mm. But then Hobbes starts to speak. Uh, life is nasty, brutish, and short. He's, he's that guy. And some of the stuff he says is really kind of true. And it makes it impossible for us to become huinims. Now, there's another side to all of this, which I want to talk with you about on the, the flip side. So, so what you're walking into at this point is uh, Gulliver's final stretch with uh, talking to his, his master, Weenum, and, and his, his final attempt to justify humans and, and try and prove that they're not yahoos. And it's heartbreaking. And, and some of it's meant to be funny. I mean, there's a moment where he says, you know, I've bent over backwards to point out all of the good qualities of humans. And of course, all he's doing is creating, for the last four chapters, a laundry list of our worst vices. And he continues it here. Um, and, and that's that, you know, part of it is that Stockholm Syndrome thing that he allows Gulliver to experience, where he's, he wants to be like the people that he's living among. And, and part of it is uh, Swift uh, ripping the rug out from under us again by saying, oh, you thought you were so good. You, you think humans are so good at this. Well, let me point out another thing that you've messed up or that you don't do well or that's vile about you, human. But there's, there's other stuff going on too. And there are a few terms that are being used archaically that you really need to know. Uh, otherwise, a couple of places you're going to get lost um, and you're gonna and you're gonna miss the satire so let me give those to you real quick uh, at one point he's going to talk about having a contrivance to make my claws of no use or defense he's talking about needing tools to change his appearance that he uses a scissors or a, or a pocket knife to trim his his nails and his beard um, so that's when he talks about contrivance that's he's using it as a term another term for like a machine or some tool now Swift is going to go into rather a long uh, ish diatribe about human sexuality in general. And you do need to kind of remember when he does this that sure, there's plenty of reason for that, but um, he wasn't really married. 
Mm, I mean, he, we think he was. He had, he had interesting relationships there, and he didn't have children. And, and I'm not bringing that up to say anything like, you know, the only reason for a married couple to ever have sexual relations is for procreation. I don't think that's, that's, uh, that's the point. I think that it's uh, when, when you're united with a partner, when you're with someone who you are, are committed to, whether through marriage or civil union or, or any, any kind of uh, permanent joining like that, a sexual relationship is part of that relationship. And it's often the first part of the relationship to show cracks in the relationship. You know, that if there is a larger problem, the first place you notice it is going to be in the bedroom. Uh, he doesn't seem to give credit to the deepening of a relationship through sexual contact. And I, I think that speaks more to him than it does to humans is all I'm trying to get at. And I, I, think, I think that deepening of the relationship is true of, of any couple that has committed to each other for the long haul. It doesn't require a piece of paper. But, you know, that's an interesting thing because I was talking to one of the wonderful people in Dallas and we were talking about young people who say, you know, well, we don't need a piece of paper to validate our relationship. And we were talking about it and I said, you know, it's not the piece of paper that validates the relationship. It's getting up in front of a group of people, your family, your friends, the people who matter most to both of you, and saying, we are doing this, and we plan to do it for the rest of our lives. Because the process of doing that does two things, or it should do two things. One, it puts you in a position where getting out of this is gonna be tricky and difficult, and it should be. If you start off by saying, this is what we're doing for the rest of our lives, that's a very adult decision, you have to put on your big girl pants and say, okay, well, this is what it means, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is for the rest of our lives. Well, getting out of that should be hard, because you, don't, you shouldn't take it lightly going in. And if you didn't take it lightly going in, getting out is going to be difficult. So there's that. And that's, of course, with the caveat that you didn't marry a psychopath or a sociopath or something, and you, you have to get out for safety's sake. That's, that's a different situation entirely. And in that case, you want to get out as fast as you can, as easily as you can. But again, it's, it's that you, you need to do due diligence before you decide to commit yourself to another person for the rest of your life. And sure, people grow apart and stuff like that, but there was a reason you got together in the first place. And growing apart, that will hurt. And, and I, think, I think that's okay. I don't know when we decided in life that everything had to be non-painful. I think pain is how we grow. I mean, my, my parents split up and I watched that happen as an adult. And it was hard on everyone. And I, and I think it, it should be. If there was care there in the first place, that should hurt. And that's okay that's how you grow so so but then there's there's the other side of it of a wedding or a, a, a ceremony that's joining two people together there's all the people who are watching who are there validating what you're doing and implicitly what they should be saying is we know we know that what you're setting out to do is difficult 
There is nothing easy about a marriage, even a good marriage, even a great marriage. There's nothing easy about it. I love my husband. He is the only one I was ever meant for. It doesn't mean it's not work. It's good work, but it's work. And so knowing that we were surrounded by friends and family who watched us get married, who implicitly agreed that that commitment was a good commitment, they were also implicitly telling us, when you hit the rough parts, we're here for you. We're, we are the village. We are the support system behind you because we all know that what you're setting out to do is difficult. Just like when somebody has a baby. My sister just had her first baby. Oh, she just had her first baby. We're very happy. He's beautiful. She had a very hard labor, but she is fine. And, uh, and so is the baby. And that's, that's really all that matters. And my brother-in-law is still vertical, and I think that's marvelous because <laughs> I think watching your wife go through a hard labor is really, really difficult. But, you know, we have, we have baby showers. We have, when somebody has a new baby, what do you do? You bring food. You bring a casserole in a disposable dish. <laughs> and you say, here's dinner for a week. Because we all know you're not going to have time to feed yourself. It's hard work getting these things started. And I think, I think that those are considerations that are largely lacking from SWIFT. Now, they're... There are also reasons for why they're lacking, but we'll get to that in a little bit later. Now, at one point, he's going to talk about spleen, evidence of spleen. The spleen is a blood filtering part of the body. And uh, because it's rich in blood, people tended to think that the spleen was responsible for emotional things. Uh, redheads are more emotional. You're going to hear this. The color red is the color of passion. The spleen was full of blood. Therefore, if you were... Uh, showing evidence of great passion you are showing spleen so that's that's all he means when he talks about spleen he will use the word slow to describe a color he's he says black as slow and that is s-l-o-e like slow gin it's a berry um blackthorn i think actually is is what it is so that's he's describing he's describing that particular um blue black color kind of blue when it turns it's kind of a re almost a reddish black um, and that's the the slow slowberry s-l-o-e and the, the last one that if you didn't know that this was uh, being used archaically it really would mess you up so uh, the word fond used to mean crazy affectionate like like stalker affectionate like beyond helicopter parent, crazy over the top. So a parent who shows no fondness, this affects, I, I, it's got to go all the way up to Dickens because I remember reading something in Dickens where the word fondness was used and I kept thinking, really? That's doesn't seem right. Fondness over fondness or showing fondness would, instead of being, you know, mild affection, oh, I'm fond of that. It would be like crazy stalker parent who wipes their kid until they're 15, you know, just like way beyond what you should be doing kind of thing. So when you hear that the Wienums show no fondness, you need to remember that that's what's really going on. All right, and with that, we are ready to listen to chapters seven and eight of 
our penultimate episode of Gulliver's Travels. Chapter 7. The author's great love of his native country. His master's observations upon the constitution and administration of England, as described by the author, with parallel cases and comparisons. His master's observation upon human nature. The reader may be disposed to wonder how I could prevail on myself to give so free a representation of my own species among a race of mortals who were already too apt to conceive the vilest opinion of humankind from that entire congruity betwixt me and their yahoos. But I must freely confess that the many virtues of those excellent quadrupeds placed in opposite view to human corruptions had so far opened mine eyes and enlarged my understanding that I began to view the actions and passions of man in a very different light, and to think the honour of my own kind not worth managing, which, besides, it was impossible for me to do before a person of so acute a judgment as my master, who daily convinced me of a thousand faults in myself, whereof I had not the least perception before, and which with us would never be numbered even among human infirmities. I had likewise learned from his example an utter detestation of all falsehood or disguise, and truth appeared so amiable to me that I determined upon sacrificing everything to it. Let me deal so candidly with the reader as to confess that there was yet a much stronger motive for the freedom I took in my representation of things. I had not been a year in this country before I contracted such a love and veneration for the inhabitants that I entered on a firm resolution never to return to humankind, but to pass the rest of my life among these admirable huinum in the contemplation and practice of every virtue, where I could have no example or incitement to vice. But it was decreed by fortune, my perpetual enemy, that so great a felicity should not fall to my share. However, it is now some comfort to reflect that in what I said of my countrymen, I extenuated their faults as much as I durst before so strict an examiner, and upon every article gave as favourable a turn as the matter would bear. For indeed, who is there alive that will not be swayed by his bias and partiality to the place of his birth? I have related the substance of several conversations I had with my master during the greatest part of the time I had the honour to be in his service, but have indeed, for brevity's sake, omitted much more than is here set down. When I had answered all his questions, and his curiosity seemed to be fully satisfied, he sent for me one morning early, and commanding me to sit down at some distance, an honour which he had never before conferred upon me, he said he had been very seriously considering my whole story as far as it related both to myself and my country, that he looked upon us as a sort of animals to whose share, by what accident he could not conjecture, some small pittance of reason had fallen, whereof we made no other use than by its assistance to aggravate our natural corruptions and to acquire new ones which nature had not given us, that we disarmed ourselves of the few abilities she had bestowed, had been very successful in multiplying our original wants, and seemed to spend our whole lives in vain endeavours to supply them by our own inventions, that, as to myself, it was manifest I had neither the strength or agility of a common yahoo, that I walked infirmly on my hinder feet, had found out a contrivance to make my claws of no use or defence, and to remove the hair from my chin, which was intended as a shelter from the sun and the weather. Lastly, 
that I could neither run with speed nor climb trees like my brethren, as he called them, the yahoos in his country, that our institutions of government and law were plainly owing to our gross defects in reason and, by consequence, in virtue, because reason alone is sufficient to govern a rational creature, which was therefore a character we had no pretense to challenge, even from the account I had given of my own people, although he manifestly perceived that in order to favor them I had concealed many particulars and often said the thing which was not. He was the more confirmed in this opinion, because he observed that as I agreed in every feature of my body with other yahoos, except where it was to my real disadvantage in point of strength, speed, and activity, the shortness of my claws and some other particulars where nature had no part, so, from the representation I had given him of our lives, our manners, and our actions, he found as near a resemblance in the disposition of our minds. He said the yahoos were known to hate one another more than they did any different species of animals, and the reason usually assigned was the odiousness of their own shapes, which all could see in the rest, but not in themselves. He had therefore begun to think it not unwise in us to cover our bodies, and by that invention conceal many of our deformities from each other, which would else be hardly supportable. But he now found he had been mistaken, and that the dissensions of those brutes in his country were owing to the same cause with ours, as I had described them. For if, he said, you throw among five yahoos as much food as would be sufficient for fifty, they will, instead of eating peaceably, fall together by the ears, each single one impatient to have all to itself and therefore a servant was usually employed to stand by while they were feeding abroad, and those kept at home were tied at a distance from each other. That if a cow died of age or accident before a hoinum could secure it for his own yahoos, those in the neighborhood would come in herds to seize it, and then would ensue such a battle as I had described, with terrible wounds made by their claws on both sides, although they seldom were able to kill one another for want of such convenient instruments of death as we had invented. At other times, the like battles have been fought between the yahoos of several neighborhoods, without any visible cause. Those of one district watch all opportunities to surprise the next before they are prepared. But if they find their project hath miscarried, they return home, and for want of enemies, engage in what I call a civil war among themselves. That in some fields of his country, there are certain shining stones of several colors, whereof the yahoos are violently fond. And when part of these stones are fixed in the earth, as it sometimes happeneth, they will dig with their claws for whole days to get them out and carry them away and hide them by heaps in their kennels, but still looking round with great caution for fear their comrades should find out their treasures. My master said he could never discover the reason of this unnatural appetite or how these stones could be of any use to a yahoo, but now he believed it might proceed from the same principle of avarice which I had ascribed to mankind, that he had once, by way of experiment, privately removed a heap of these stones from the place where one of his yahoos had buried it, whereupon the sordid animal missing his treasure by his loud lamenting brought the whole herd to the place, there miserably howled, then fell to biting and tearing the rest, began to pine away, would neither eat nor sleep nor work, till he ordered a servant privately to convey the stones into the same hole and hide them as before, which when his yahoo had found, he presently recovered his spirits and good humor, but took care to remove them to a better hiding place, 
and hath ever since been a very serviceable brute. My master father assured me, which I also observed myself, that in the fields where these shining stones abound, the fiercest and most frequent battles are fought, occasioned by perpetual inroads of the neighboring yahoos. He said it was common when two yahoos discovered such a stone in a field, and were contending which of them should be the proprietor, a third would take the advantage and carry it away from them both, which my master woulds needs contend to have some resemblance with our suits at law, wherein I thought it for our credit not to undeceive him, since the decision he mentioned was much more equitable than many decrees among us, because the plaintiff and defendant there lost nothing besides the stone they contended for, whereas our courts of equity would never have dismissed the cause while either of them had anything left. My master, continuing his discourse, said there was nothing that rendered the yahoos more odious than their undistinguishing appetite to devour everything that came in their way, whether herbs, roots, berries, corrupted flesh of animals, or all mingled together. And it was peculiar in their temper that they were fond of what they could get by rapine or stealth at a greater distance than much better food provided for them at home. If their prey held out, they would eat till they were ready to burst, after which nature had pointed out to them a certain root that gave them a general evacuation. There was also another kind of root, very juicy, but something rare and difficult to be found, which the yahoos sought for with much eagerness and would suck it with great delight. It produced the same effects that wine hath upon us. It would make them sometimes hug and sometimes tear one another. They would howl and grin and chatter and rowl and tumble and then fall asleep in the mud. I did indeed observe that the yahoos were the only animals in this country subject to any diseases, which, however, were much fewer than horses have among us and contracted not by any ill treatment they met with, but by the nastiness and greediness of that sordid brute. Neither has their language any more than a general appellation for those maladies, which is borrowed from the name of the beast and called Hanir-Yahoo, or the Yahoo's evil, and the cure prescribed is a mixture of their own dung and urine forcibly put down the Yahoo's throat. This I have since often known to have been taken with success, and do here freely recommend it to my countrymen for the public good as an admirable specific against all diseases produced by repletion. As to learning, government, arts, manufactures, and the like, my master confessed he could find little or no resemblance between the yahoos of that country and those in ours, for he only meant to observe what parity there was in our natures. He had heard, indeed, some curious hoenum observed that in most herds there was a sort of ruling yahoo, as among us there is generally some leading or principal stag in a park who was always more deformed in body and mischievous in disposition than any of the rest, that this leader had usually a favorite as like himself as he could get, whose employment was to lick his master's feet and posteriors and drive the female yahoos to his kennel, for which he was now and then rewarded with a piece of ass's flesh. This favorite is hated by the whole herd, and therefore, to protect himself, keeps always near the person of his leader." He usually continues in office till a worse can be found, but the very moment he is discarded, his successor, at the head of all the yahoos in that district, young and old, male and female, come in a body and discharge their excrements upon him from head to foot. But how far this might be applied to our courts and favorites and ministers of state, my master said I could best determine. 
I durst make no return to this malicious insinuation, which debased human understanding below the sagacity of a common hound who hath judgment enough to distinguish and follow the cry of the ablest dog in the pack, without being ever mistaken. My master told me there was some qualities remarkable in the yahoos, which he had not observed me to mention, or at least very slightly in the accounts I had given him of humankind. He said those animals, like other brutes, had their females in common, but in this they differed, that the she-yahoo would admit the male while she was pregnant, and that the he's would quarrel and fight with the females as fiercely as with each other, both which practices were such degrees of infamous brutality that no other sensitive creature ever arrived at. Another thing he wondered at in the yahoos was their strange disposition to nastiness and dirt, whereas there appears to be a natural love of cleanliness in all other animals. As to the two former accusations, I was glad to let them pass without any reply, because I had not a word to offer upon them in difference of my species, which otherwise I certainly had done from my own inclinations. But I could have easily vindicated humankind from the imputation of singularity upon the last article, if there had been any swine in that country, as unluckily for me there was not, which although it may be a sweeter quadruped than a yahoo, cannot I humbly conceive in justice pretend to more cleanliness. And so his honour himself must have owned, if he had seen their filthy way of feeding and their custom of wallowing and sleeping in the mud. My master likewise mentioned another quality, which his servants had discovered in several yahoos, and to him was wholly unaccountable. He said a fancy would sometimes take a yahoo to retire into a corner, to lie down and howl and groan and spurn away all that came near him, although he were young and fat and wanted neither food nor water. Nor did the servants imagine what could possibly ail him, and the only remedy they found was to set him to hard work, after which he would infallibly come to himself. To this I was silent out of partiality to my own kind, yet here I could plainly discover the true seeds of spleen, which only seizeth on the lazy, the luxurious, and the rich, who, if they were forced to undergo the same regimen, I would undertake for the cure. His honour had farther observed that a female yahoo would often stand behind a bank or a bush to gaze on the young males passing by, and then appear and hide using many antic gestures and grimaces, at which time it was observed that she had a most offensive smell, and when any of the males advanced would slowly retire, looking off and back, and with a counterfeit show of fear run off into some convenient place where she knew the male would follow her. At other times, if a female stranger came among them, three or four of her own sex would get about her, and stare and chatter and grin and smell her all over, and then turn off with gestures that seemed to express contempt and disdain. Perhaps my master might refine a little in these speculations which he had drawn from what he observed himself, or had been told him by others, However, I could not reflect without some amazement and much sorrow that the rudiments of lewdness, coquetry, censure, and scandal should have a place by instinct in womankind. I expected every moment that my master would accuse the yahoos of those unnatural appetites in both sexes so common among us. But nature, it seems, hath not been so expert a schoolmistress, and these politer pleasures are entirely the productions of art and reason on our side of the globe. Chapter 8. The author relateth several particulars of the yahoos, the great virtues of the hoenums, 
the education and exercise of their youth, their general assembly. As I ought to have understood human nature much better than I suppose it possible for my master to do so, so it was easy to apply the character he gave of the yahoos to myself and my countrymen, and I believe I could yet make farther discoveries from my own observation. I therefore often begged his honour to let me go among the herds of yahoos in the neighbourhood, to which he always very graciously consented, being perfectly convinced that the hatred I bore those brutes would never suffer me to be corrupted by them, and his honour ordered one of his servants, a strong sorrel nag, very honest and good-natured, to be my guardian, without whose protection I durst not undertake such adventures. For I have already told the reader how much I was pestered by those odious animals upon my first arrival. I afterwards failed very narrowly three or four times of falling into their clutches when I happened to stray at any distance without my hanger, and I have reason to believe they had some imagination that I was of their own species, which I often assisted myself by stripping up my sleeves and showing my naked arms and breast in their sight when my protector was with me, at which times they would approach as near as they durst and imitate my actions after the manner of monkeys, but ever with great signs of hatred, as a tame jackdaw with cap and stockings is always persecuted by the wild ones when he happens to be got among them. They are prodigiously nimble from their infancy. However, I once caught a young male of three years old and endeavoured by all marks of tenderness to make it quiet, but the little imp fell a-squalling and scratching and biting with such violence that I was forced to let it go, and it was high time for a whole troop of old ones came about us at the noise, but finding the cub was safe, for away it ran, and my sorrel nag being by, they durst not venture near us. I observed the young animal's flesh to smell very rank, and the stink was somewhat between a weasel and a fox, but much more disagreeable. I forgot another circumstance, and perhaps I might have the reader's pardon if it were wholly omitted, that while I held the odious vermin in my hands, it voided its filthy excrements of a yellow liquid substance all over my clothes. But by good fortune, there was a small brook hard by, where I washed myself as clean as I could, although I durst not come into my master's presence until I was sufficiently aired. By what I could discover, the yahoos appear to be the most unteachable of all animals, their capacities never reaching higher than to draw or carry burdens. Yet I am of opinion this defect ariseth chiefly from a perverse, restive disposition, for they are cunning, malicious, treacherous, and revengeful. They are strong and hardy, but of a cowardly spirit, and by consequence insolent, abject, and cruel. It is observed that the red-haired of both sexes are more libidinous and mischievous than the rest, whom yet they much exceed in strength and activity. The Huinums keep the yahoos for present use in huts not far from the houses, but the rest are sent abroad to certain fields, where they dig up roots, eat several kinds of herbs, and search about for carrion, or sometimes weasels, and lehums, a sort of wild rat, which they greedily devour. Nature hath taught them to dig deep holes with their nails on the side of a rising ground, wherein they lie by themselves, only the kennels of the females are larger, sufficient to hold two or three cubs. They swim from their infancy like frogs, and are able to continue long under water, where they often take fish which the females carry home to their young, 
And upon this occasion, I hope the reader will pardon my relating an odd adventure. Being one day abroad with my protector, the sorrel nag, and the weather exceeding hot, I entreated him to let me bathe in a river that was near. He consented, and I immediately stripped myself stark naked and went down softly into the stream. It happened that a young female yahoo, standing behind a bank, saw the whole proceeding, and inflamed by desire, as the nag and I conjectured, came running with all speed and leapt into the water within five yards of the place where I bathed. I was never in my life so terribly frighted. The nag was grazing at some distance, not suspecting any harm. She embraced me after a most fulsome manner. I roared as loud as I could, and the nag came galloping towards me, whereupon she quitted her grasp with the utmost reluctancy and leapt upon the opposite bank, where she stood gazing and howling all the time I was putting on my clothes. This was matter of diversion to my master and his family, as well as of mortification to myself, for now I could no longer deny that I was a real yahoo in every limb and feature, since the female had a natural propensity to me as one of their own species. Neither was the hair of this brute of a red color, which might have been some excuse for an appetite a little irregular, but black as a sloe, and her countenance did not make an appearance altogether so hideous as the rest of the kind, for I think she could not have been above eleven years old. Having already lived three years in this country, the reader, I suppose, will expect that I should, like other travellers, give him some account of the manners and customs of its inhabitants, which it was indeed my principal study to learn. As these noble Hoenum are endowed by nature with a general disposition to all virtues, and have no conceptions or ideas of what is evil in a rational creature, so their grand maxim is to cultivate reason and to be wholly governed by it. Neither is reason among them a point problematical as with us, where men can argue with plausibility on both sides of a question, but strikes you with immediate conviction, as it must needs do where it is not mingled, obscured, or discoloured by passion and interest. I remember it was with extreme difficulty that I could bring my master to understand the meaning of the word opinion, or how a point could be disputable, because reason taught us to affirm or deny only where we are certain, and beyond our knowledge we cannot do either so that controversy, wranglings, disputes, and positiveness in false or dubious proportions are evils unknown among the hoenums. In the like manner, when I used to explain to him our several systems of natural philosophy, he would laugh that a creature pretending to reason should value itself upon the knowledge of other people's conjectures and in things where that knowledge, if it were certain, could be of no use wherein he agreed entirely with the sentiments of Socrates as Plato delivers them, which I mention as the highest honour I can do that prince of philosophers. I have often since reflected what destruction such a doctrine would make in the libraries of Europe, and how many paths to fame would be then shut up in the learned world. Friendship and benevolence are the two principal virtues among the Hoenums, and these not confined to particular objects, but universal to the whole race. For a stranger from the remotest part is equally treated with the nearest neighbor, and wherever he goes looks upon himself as at home. They preserve decency and civility in the highest degrees, but are altogether ignorant of ceremony. They have no fondness for their colts or folds, 
but the care they take in educating them proceedeth entirely from the dictates of reason. And I observed my master to show the same affection to his neighbor's issue that he had for his own. They will have it that nature teaches them to love the whole species, and it is reason only that maketh a distinction of persons where there is a superior degree of virtue. When the matron Hoenums have produced one of each sex, they no longer accompany with their consorts, except they lose one of their issue by some casualty, which very seldom happens. But in such a case, they meet again, or when the like accident befalls a person whose wife is past bearing, some other couple bestow on him one of their own cults, and then go together a second time until the mother be pregnant. This caution is necessary to prevent the country from being overburdened with numbers. But the race of inferior hoenums, bred up to be servants, is not so strictly limited upon this article. These are allowed to produce three of each sex to be domesticated in the noble families. In their marriages, they are exactly careful to choose such colors as will not make any disagreeable mixture in the breed. Strength is chiefly valued in the male and comeliness in the female, not upon the account of love, but to preserve the race from degenerating. For where a female happens to excel in strength, a consort is chosen with regard to comeliness. Courtship, love, presence, jointures, settlements have no place in their thoughts or terms whereby to express them in their language. The young couple meet and are joined merely because it is the determination of their parents and friends. It is what they see done every day, and they look upon it as one of the necessary actions in a reasonable being. But the violation of marriage or any other unchastity was never heard of, and the married pair pass their lives with the same friendship and mutual benevolence that they bear to all others of the same species who come in their way without jealousy, fondness, quarreling, or discontent. In educating the youth of both sexes, their method is admirable and highly deserveth our imitation. These are not suffered to taste a grain of oats except upon certain days till eighteen years old, nor milk but very rarely. And in summer they graze two hours in the morning and as many in the evening, which their parents likewise observe, but the servants are not allowed above half that time, and a great part of the grass is brought home, which they eat at the most convenient hours when they can be best spared from work. Temperance, industry, exercise, and cleanliness are the lessons equally enjoyed to the young ones of both sexes, and my master thought it monstrous in us to give the females a different kind of education from the males, except in some articles of domestic management, whereby, as he truly observed, one half of our natives were good for nothing but bringing children into the world, and to trust the care of their children to such useless animals, he said, was yet a greater instance of brutality. But the Huinums train up their youth to strength, speed, and hardiness by exercising them in running races up and down steep hills or over hard, stony grounds. And when they are all in a sweat, they are ordered to leap over head and ears into a pond or a river. Four times a year, the youth of a certain district meet to show the proficiency in running and leaping and other feats of strength or agility, where the victor is rewarded with a song made in his or her praise. On this festival, the servants drive a herd of yahoos into the field, laden with hay and oats and milk, for a repast to the hoenums, after which these brutes are immediately driven back again for fear of being noisome to the assembly. 
Every fourth year, at the vernal equinox, there is a representative council of the whole nation which meets in a plain about twenty miles from our house and continueth about five or six days. Here they inquire into the state and condition of the several districts, whether they abound or be deficient in hay or oats or cows or yahoos, and wherever there is any want, which is but seldom, it is immediately supplied by unanimous consent and contribution. Here, likewise, the regulation of children is settled, as, for instance, if a hoinum hath two males, he changeth one of them with another who hath two females. And when a child hath been lost by any casualty where the mother is past breeding, it is determined what family shall breed another to supply the loss. Here, I think, is one of those really interesting moments. Because, again, if you look at reason, you say, raising two children, they're like cats. They keep each other occupied. It's easier in some ways than having one. You let them run off on their own. That's fine. You are not expanding the population base. You are merely replacing yourself. This is a reasonable, um, enlightenment kind of thought process. And it's looking at children like widgets. <laughs> like interchangeable widgets. If you have given birth, you know that the process you go through is rather fraught there at the end. And I'm reminded of all of this having watched my sister, uh, and in fact my sister-in-law a year earlier go through this, that uh, birth is risky. Um, my sister would have died a uh, hundred years ago, they, and the baby probably would have too. And there is no question in my mind that it is modern medicine that saved her life. She had a birth plan, and as we say, you have the birth plan, you go in with your goal written down, very clear, so everybody knows it, and then when reality smacks you upside the head, you make rational reason decisions to keep yourself alive. And, uh, and my, my friends who have adopted children, these processes are no less fraught. The, the, uh, the weight of the physical part of the process is, is actually kind of complicated because you don't get any of the endorphins that you might get from giving birth. Instead, you just don't get to sleep for the rest of the child's upbringing. And you have nothing physiological to help you out with that. And the emotional roller coaster you go through when adopting a child is not to be believed. I've, I've experienced this with a number of friends, and I'm constantly, honestly horrified at what adoptive parents are put through. Um, if you don't prove that you are a worthy parent by the end of the process, I don't know what you would have to do to prove it. It's crazed. And, uh, and friends of mine who've actually worked in the adoption, adoption business have said that on, on their end, you know, dealing with rules and regulations, but also internal rules and regulations for the companies that they work for, the, the government agencies they work for, it's all very difficult. And, uh, and so birth, whether it's your body doing it or someone else's, the birth of a child is an extraordinarily emotional thing. And the thought that you could just say, oh, here's one of my kids. You need one. I mean, it's beautiful. It's lovely. It's shocking. <laughs> the heartbreak 
that I would have experienced if I had had to hand either of my kids over to someone else. I mean, aside from the fact that I don't actually honestly think I should inflict my kids on anyone else like that, or, or, or that anyone else would uh, understand them. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it makes me laugh and cry all at the same time. And I've started to get a sneaking suspicion that that actually, the laughing and crying, may be what Swift is going for here. Because Swift, Swift, as we've said before, is too good a satirist, just like Mark Twain, too good to not get what he's saying. I, I, I think there's the, there's him holding these beautiful, rational beings, these lovely animals, these horses, the Huynum, up and putting them on a pedestal and saying, look, look at what, what they've done. This beautiful society that we've created. Look at that. Couldn't we do that? Don't we have the faculty to, to be that reasonable and that rational and that, that lovely and, and that perfect? Can't we do that? Do we have to wallow in the mud with the rest of the yahoos? I mean, do we really have to hang out with the stinky bunch of idiots swilling beer and spilling it down their fronts and making the entire fraternity house, oh, did I say that out loud, smell like beer and urine all the time? Can't we go live in the nice house with the pretty people who know how to behave themselves and say thank you and shake hands like humans? And I think Swift, even after all of that, and, and even after he as a writer ha had lived with the Huynams, because you really do emotionally live with the people you're writing about, even after living with the Huynams himself for eight chapters now, I think he would even tell you, no, we don't get to live in the nice house and we don't get to be the pretty people but that's not necessarily a bad thing because the Huynams as you may have noticed in these two chapters are passionless they are purely rational and while Norton Juster did a beautiful job in the Phantom Tollbooth of creating the princess of of sweet rhyme and the princess of pure reason. And they're lovely, lovely characters. They have sparkling senses of humor and they're sweet and they're marvelous and Milo's in love with them and that's great. When you, when you really push it to its final level, pure reason implies that there is one right answer for everything. There's no debate, there's no discussion, which means... <laughs> For Jews, that would be hell. Uh, no debate, no discussion. Oh, that would be so boring. Uh, but it, but it also uh, means that there is no great love, either. Not for your, not for your children. If your children are widgets, if they're interchangeable, then, then they're not. They're not those amazing bundles of joy that you get to watch, grow up and and marvel at and, and and you know, sit back and look at with love in your eyes, They're, they aren't those people or, or those Huynams. 
and uh, and the, the the person who you've decided to have these children with is just another person. And then you start thinking about the other things that you would lose out on. Um, looking at a glorious sunset. Oh my gosh, when I was in Texas with Knitting Rose and, and Big Texan and Alyssa from, from the Knitting Fairy, we we had a sunset alert. Now, I haven't had a sunset alert since I left Arizona because we, we have sunsets here in Virginia, but there's so many trees, you really don't get that horizon, that big horizon that you get out west. And uh, we were having dinner and we were talking and laughing and all of a sudden we all kind of looked out the window because it was suddenly bright red and fuchsia and orange and golden outside. And so we all, we all went outside because you have to. And Big Texan took a picture of us and, and it was so, it was so beautiful. You know, to all of us, all of us go outside and you're just silent for that moment where you look at it. And this joy fills you. You know, you can hear the birds and the crickets are starting and one half of the sky is getting dark and that, that beautiful, tranquil, dark blue color that you only get in the sky. And then on the other side of the sky is that stunning amalgamation of color. And, and part of the reason why the sunset was so stunning is because it had been raining. And so the, the clouds had kind of broken and the sun was starting to come through. And so it was those colors at play on the clouds. It was Bespin. It was Cloud City. It was, it was the Empire Strikes Back. It was stunning. Well, we feel that love and that passion for beauty. Whereas a Wynnum would just look at it and identify it as beautiful, but not feel anything for it. And so, and so Swift is implicitly raising that question, well, is that the world we want to live in? Is that how we want to live our life? Because that's the price of living in a purely rational, purely reason-filled world. And this is the horrible part of what we're walking into, is Swift has destroyed both of our choices by, by separating it into a dichotomy, where there's, there's two extremes. There's the yahoos, who are pure passion, and they're pigs, and horrifying, and pure reason, which is lovely, and stately, and beautiful, and calm and peaceful, but passionless. And, and, and that's it. That's all we got. And we can, you know, tut-tut around and say, well, that's a false dichotomy. I mean, there's always a middle, there's this, that, and the other thing. And it's true, but, but that's not Swift's point, and that's not where he's trying to go here. Obviously, if, if all of this story is symbolic and satiric, and creating um, these, these uh, kind of fanciful realities for him to allow his satire to play out within, then he's, he's not going to let us find a middle ground because he can't make his point in that sludge that's in the middle where, where, where we live our, our daily lives. He's going to push us to the very edge, just like Twain did, just, just like why those last three chapters of Connecticut Yankee will always make you tear up. And, and honestly, Dickens, too. 
with uh, with Sidney Carton at the end of Tale of Two Cities. You know, they they put you to that that point of inevitability, and they yank the rug out from under you, and you are left questioning everything. And I think that is marvelous. And I think we find it in literature far too rarely these days, where where you're put to a point where you as a reader are being expected to question and judge and make a decision. And it's one of the reasons why I love doing this show. (laughs) So there we are. I'm going to let you go and think about that. And this has actually been kind of a heavy show. Uh, uh, And next week's probably will be too. And then we'll take a little break and then we'll start Jane Eyre. So you've got, you've got some happy heading your way. Well, she says happy. Happy in quotation marks. Happy eventually? Sort of. And uh, I am going to go back to knitting my little Moki Moki Land pattern. I have a little zombie. <laughs> if you haven't seen these patterns before, I am going to link to them. I got this at the Knitting Fairy, and I am making little zombies for the boys. So that's how I'm coming to terms with Gulliver. And there it is. I hope you have a great week. I will talk to you soon. Take care of yourselves. Be well. Bye. There are many ways to listen to Craftlet. You can listen on your smartphone via the Stitcher Radio app. You can subscribe free through iTunes. Or you can download and listen to the iPhone, iTouch, and Android app, where you'll receive occasional extras for the show. Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, volume two, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlit.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one.